0: Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. I hope all of you have had a good weekend, and I'm glad to be on the air with you all. I didn't think maybe I'd be on the air with you all this weekend, uh, but then again, I figured I've got time, and uh, why not take advantage of it? Well, uh, when I was on the air last, uh, we had discussed um, relevant information, uh, but then again, when have we not discussed anything that was relevant regardless of the subjects that we've discussed uh, for some time, but when I was on the air last, I will have to admit that one of the most important things that we did come away with uh, learning was that um, the British presence in Virginia by 1781, going into 1781 and after 1781 has begun, it was going to be different from uh, past British um, invasions. And the reason for that is because 1781, the, um, the state of the war is much different than it was in 1778, largely because after June of 1778, the British were in a stalemate. They had not been able to achieve a knockout blow. And what I mean by a knockout blow is that they had not been able to hit that home run out of the park that pretty much would have... Uh, demoralized all Continental um, armies, um chances of being able to uh, get the upper hand. So the British have not really been able to um, strike big. They thought they were able, gonna do it in Saratoga in 1777. Their defeat there allows the French to eventually come to the side of the Americans. And of course, by doing so, uh, France is lending uh, money, and not just money uh, to spend, but this money is going towards supplies, tents, like supplies like tents, uh, muskets, rifles, ammunition, cannon, uh, not just cannons, but the parts that go to a cannon as well. Just to name a few things, but having the French as our allies is very significant. So obviously, we've we're now at a the stalemate happens in late June of 1778 after the uh, uh battle at Monmouth uh Courthouse, New Jersey. And because of that stalemate, the British now realize that they really only have one other direction to go. And that is to go south into the southern colonies. And lar- and that was largely due in fact because Parliament And the kings uh, and the crown believed that the majority of the loyalist population in America is down south. Considering that Virginia is the largest of the thirteen colonies, they probably felt that hey, if we can you know somehow get a hold on Virginia, that we would not have any trouble returning her people back to uh, being subjects of the crown. And as we've learned. that with uh, mixed results from the Carolinas, that taming the Carolinas had not been an easy task. But what I will say in this uh, segment, we will uh, talk uh, some more about the Carolinas. And I'm sure many of you all are wondering, why do we need to talk about the Carolinas again? Well, we need to understand um, that, we need to understand how um, The greater British force arrived to Virginia. They just didn't arrive there overnight in 1781. Yes, we already know Benedict Arnold and his forces arrived into Virginia shortly before uh, the start of January 1781, but we need to understand that there is a greater concentration of British um, forces that will be making their way into Virginia, but they will be coming into Virginia uh, through the Carolinas, but we need to understand how all of that, um, how, how all of that will lie out because the greater force of British troops coming into the Carolinas will set the stage for for the next round of British invasions that start in Virginia that will either make or break the safety that is the greater well-being of uh, security for the greater Commonwealth of Virginia, knowing that Virginia is the largest of the 13 colonies. I mean, we think about it, Virginia's security is not only impacted in the Tidewater region, but as we go to Richmond, and we've already learned from the previous podcast about what happened under uh, Benedict Arnold's um, What happened where Benedict Arnold and his men uh, destroyed uh, Richmond. Uh, They basically were very upset that Governor Jefferson did not give in to their demands and obviously Arnold and his men destroy uh, pretty much most of Richmond. But thank heavens that uh, Colonel Sampson Matthews was able to muster up enough uh, militiamen that we learned from the previous episode whom were able to uh, use uh, irregular style tactics to um, to repeal a further um, British invasion that would have gone west of Richmond, uh, Samson, Colonel Sampson Matthews and his men were able to um, force Benedict Arnold and his forces back uh, east of Richmond into Portsmouth. I guess the bigger question now will be is, how long would Benedict Arnold and his forces stay in Portsmouth until reinforcements arrive? Well, we're going to find that out in this uh Podcast segment. So let's fasten our seatbelts and get ready to go for our first uh, leadoff question, being the following When did British General Lord Charles Cornwallis and his forces arrive into Virginia? Okay, let me ask you this. Uh, did they, I'll give you a couple choices. Did they arrive um, in January of 1781? Did they come? At the start of April 1781, or did uh, General Lord Charles Cornwallis and his forces arrive into Virginia on May 20th of 1781? Uh, The answer is choice C. They uh, arrived uh, May 20th of 1781. Cornwallis and his troops came into uh, Petersburg. Do any of you all know who don't live in Virginia, do you all know where Petersburg is located? Would that be uh, south of Richmond? or would it be um, west of Richmond? Petersburg is south of Richmond, but uh, Petersburg also um, is not too terribly far um, from what we now know as the Virginia-North Carolina line. It's not like smack dab on the Virginia-North Carolina line, but it's en route uh, to uh, North Carolina, but not too terribly far. Uh, Petersburg Yes, is where General uh, Lord Charles Cornwallis and his forces will arrive. Uh, they will eventually make their way to Richmond, but obviously they have, are stopping in Petersburg for a short period of time. Now, prior to entering Virginia, General Cornwallis had been confined to fighting throughout the Carolinas. Okay, so many of you all are wondering okay, where has Cornwallis been for the most part in the Southern campaign? Prior to coming into Virginia, the answer is the following. He's been in the Carolinas. Now, when the British first arrived into the southern um, colonies, they actually started out in Georgia, Savannah and Augusta, Georgia, in late 1778. However, this is not the first time they are in the southern colonies. In uh, 1775 and 1776, there were skirmishes in South Carolina one in the up, upper country, and then there was one in the low country, and the one in the, in the low country has often gotten more recognition. There was a battle at Sullivan's Island in 1776 where the British were turned away. And after that um, battle, many in South Carolina felt as though they didn't need to be worried about anything. They felt that as though they had seen the last of the British and that the British really were not interested in fighting in a colony where there just had not been a whole lot of um, turmoil, say, like up in Massachusetts. But come late 1778, the British start making their presence in uh, Savannah, and Augusta, Georgia, Augusta being north of Savannah. Of course, when we all think of Augusta, what is the one thing we think of? The Masters Golf Tournament. (laughs) Well, there was no such thing as the Masters Golf Tournament back then, folks. But anyways, the British... um, get victories at Savannah that's their first one but Cornwallis strikes big he starts out strong in South Carolina most notably uh, at the siege of Charleston remember we talked about that from the previous uh podcast that 45-day siege where uh, Benjamin Lincoln or I should say general Benjamin Lincoln made a valiant effort you know he didn't want to be frowned upon as being a coward and not uh, making any attempt to um hold Charleston down, but unfortunately, being outnumbered close to 7,000 troops did not help him. And in the end, he was forced to um, undergo the largest surrender of troops, being uh, 5,400 men. That's a lot of troops, and knowing that almost close to 2,600 of them were uh, sent aboard as uh, prisoners of, um, of uh, British warships. And as we mentioned from the previous podcast, um, that when I thought of prison warships, I thought I often thought of the ones from up in New York Harbor, where many of them died, many American prisoners sadly died an agonizing death. And historians do know that about roughly 12,000 uh, men uh, who became prisoners of war sadly uh, lost their lives on uh, prison ships, not just in New York, but elsewhere, and probably in the Carolinas. But of course, with... Um, the siege of Charleston, as we all know, that many of the soldiers who were impacted by that siege did come from Virginia. So Cornwallis, yes, uh, started out strong with the siege of Charleston and also with the Battle of Camden. Um, Camden, uh, that battle happened in uh, August of 1780. Uh, the The American general at the time was Horatio Gates, whom was not George Washington's choice, Top choice to be commander of the Southern Continental Army. Uh, under no circumstances did Washington want Gates being commander of the Southern Continental Army, but of course, the Continental Congress rebuked Washington. And Gates, uh, you know, he may have been the hero at Saratoga, but that, uh, Saratoga, New York, but that came as a, at a price as well. He basically uh, snubbed Benedict Arnold. And of course, the whole, um, Controversy with Benedict Arnold switching sides was based upon a variety of reasons. It wasn't confined to one, but one of them did have to do with the way he had been treated by um, other generals, most notably Horatio Gates. Most people don't realize that Benedict Arnold was um, snubbed largely because Benedict Arnold used tactics that he proposed to Gates that um, Gates finally used at the end, but Gates did not give Arnold the full credit and recognition that he deserved. So, at uh, Camden, uh, Gates had more men than Cornwallis, but Cornwallis uh, routed Gates' forces, largely due to the fact that Gates Gates pretty much sent militia groups up to the front, not knowing what they were going to be going up against, meaning they were going to be going up against some of the best British regulars known um, to mankind and many of the American uh, forces had marched about 400 miles. They came 400 miles northward from uh, Virginia, Maryland, and Delaware, all the way south to South Carolina. They were in no condition to fight. Many of them were very malnourished, uh, and I'm I'm sorry if I'm going to gross you all out here, but just know that many of the men were so bad off that they had to use hair powder to thicken their soup. Now, isn't that horrible? to know, folks, that uh, soldiers had to go as far as using hair powder to thicken their soup just so that the soup would taste, would have some kind of meaningful taste to it. Many soldiers were ill-prepared to fight in this battle and were forced to fight against their own will, and many of them were taken prisoner of war, including a majority of Virginians. So, for uh, General Lord Charles Cornwallis, things are going good. I mean, he's, um, I mean, he's taken Charleston, he's taken Camden between the spring and summer of 1780. It seems as though nothing is, is going to stop him. But the ironic thing was that prior, just around the time he's he wins big at Camden, there are a group of American um, officers, not officers, but men who might as well be officers who were not sent to fight at Camden, who were spared. And had these men not been spared and went to Camden to fight, they would have been taken prisoners of war. And more than likely, we probably would never have heard of them again. Men like Francis Marion, who became known as the Swamp Fox, Andrew Pickens, um, Robert Ory. Just to name a few uh, men who may have started out small on the um, spectrum in terms of their leadership, but men whose... valuable uh, leadership in terms of how they would go about conducting war differently um, would prove to be pivotal, because after Camden, there were many in the Southern um, Continental Army who weren't even sure who would be uh, taking command. They were pretty much left to fend for themselves, so, so basically by the fall of 1780, into the start of 1781, things start changing, but they change for the better for the uh, Southern Continental Army. Before 1780 ends, George Washington selects a new leader who will be the the man who pretty much saves the Southern Continental Army from complete um, collapse, being uh, Major General Nathaniel Green. So by fall of 1780 into the start of 1781, General Cornwallis, begins to see the British go from starting out strong to becoming defeated. Fall of 1780, saw Cornwallis' forces get um, pretty much annihilated at Kings Mountain in October of 1780, and at uh, Calpens up in the far northwestern part of South Carolina come January 17th of 1781, Cornwallis and some of his other top-level um, commanders below him experience a defeat like they never had before. By March 15, 1781, and we're going to now talk about this part, he, this matter of the uh, war here, because this is what will eventually lead to Cornwallis and his men going north to Virginia, but we have to talk about this part here to understand how the 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 uh, march north to Virginia happens. March 15, 1781, Cornwallis and his forces go head to toe, or I should say uh, they go head to toe in full-scale combat against uh, patriot or I should say American forces led by Major General Nathaniel Green at a place in North Carolina. Okay, now the British have made it to North Carolina at a place known as Guilford Courthouse in present-day Greensboro, North Carolina. Cornwallis has a force of about 2,100 men versus Nathaniel Green, whom has a force of about 4,500. Well, to me, that's a big um, difference there, 4,500 against 2,100. Does it automatically mean, though, that if one side has 4,500 men versus the other side that has 2,100, that there's going to be a victory for the side that has the most men. No. However, However, folks, I should say that what we're going to learn next says a lot about Major General Nathaniel Green as a leader, and it's all for the right reasons. So let's pay attention here. Before I get into this part, I should say that Major General Nathaniel Green has been the one that has um, has played a vital part in, behind the philosophy of, ir- of irregular-style fighting. That is, we're not going go to go head-to-toe in every battle on an open battlefield with the British Army, because all it's going to take is one battle. One battle alone will pretty much ruin the Southern Continental Army. One major battle, that is. And if Camden wasn't enough to have uh, taught us just how bad we got routed, then all it will take is another battle for us to repeat those same mistakes. So for Nathaniel Green, he knows that in order for the Continental Army to stay intact, they're going to have to do things differently. Irregular-style fighting. Francis Marion goes along with us, Andrew Pickens, Thomas Sumter, who becomes known as the Fighting Gamecock, they all know that, hey, in order to engage the British, we've got to engage them in irregular style fighting. But over time, we will be able to engage them in an open field battle. But for now, we've got to engage them in smaller style skirmishes, irregular fighting, that they are not accustomed to. And the goal in the end is to wear the enemy down. In other words, if we kill five or ten of their men in the forest, that means that they are going to be ten men short not just short-term, but maybe long-term. That means that Cornwallis will have to go to the backcountry to find men whom are loyal to the Crown just to be able to replace ten of his own regulars. So the bottom line is is that Cornwallis is spending more time focusing on the size of his army. He doesn't focus on the speed. In other words, speed meaning how quick can you strike at at the opposition. How quick can you get the opposition to go into territory that that they think they're safe in, but they're not, and we can keep killing them or, or taking out men at different um, times to where if they lose 30 men before day's end, 30 out of, say, 60 men, that means half of the opposition is gone. So the bottom line is, is that we're going to find out who is better at speed, and who's more concerned about size. So here we go. Major General Nathaniel Green placed his army in three lines, which basically means that Green is spacing each of his line or unit apart. And we're not talking about one unit per line. We're talking um, multiple units. But he's spacing them apart to where... Troops and artillery are going to be used at different intervals or stages of actual battlefield combat, so not all 4,500 men are going to go at the same time. Well, yes, this was very effective, and Green got results. Fighting on both sides would be very intense, and it did include skirmishes within the forests. Skirmishes, folks, within the forests. Irregular warfare. And how about this? Cornwallis's horse that he rode on that day of March 15 1781 got shot from under meaning that Cornwallis's horse being shot from below forced Cornwallis to be fallen off of his horse and somehow <clears throat> he still managed to get troops out of harm's way through means of exiting the woods hey you got to give Cornwallis credit he still uh, was able to um rally his troops, in other words, be able to get them to form some kind of a retreat that was a, um, a retreat that wasn't one out of chaos. But Corn, the big mistake here, though, is after he got his troops out of harm's way by means of getting whatever number he could out of the woods, Cornwallis does something that will backfire. He ordered one of his officers... To fire grape shot. Okay, what is grape shot, folks? It does have something to do, it has nothing to do with grapes that we eat. But what grape shot is, folks, is that it's ammunition made up of smaller, smaller caliber round shots packed tight in canvas bags. So we're talking about clusters of small cannonballs but they're the size of grapes. They are packed so tight that once the grape shot itself got fired from the cannon, the, the canvas wrapping comes apart, and the tightly packed balls disperse where they sail in all directions, whether it's going straight to the left or to the right, and it could be in a zigzag direction to where these tightly packed balls disperse and they sail in all directions, inflicting casualties. And sadly for Cornwallis, his instructions to use the grape shot led to further casualties on both sides, but more so, folks, the, casualty, the greater number of casualties came on his side, meaning more of his own men died due to an improper act of judgment. I I understand that Cornwallis wanted to inflict harm on the opposition, but what he didn't realize was that he had many of his own men fighting out there on an open battlefield against uh, Continental regulars. So at at day's end, folks, Cornwallis, this was only a one-day battle, folks. Cornwallis lost over a quarter of his men. That means, okay, a quarter out of 100, that's 25%, folks. Historians now know that he lost 27% of his men all because of his, all because of his instructions to fire grape shot that led to so many men of his own men not just dying but being wounded. He had more men wounded than he had dying. The battle of Guilford Courthouse folks, how long do you think this battle lasted? 3 hours, 90 minutes or um, 5 hours? The answer is ninety minutes, one hour, thirty minutes. So, the Americans suffered um, a lo- their share of wounded men and casualties. But did the Americans have a better um, withdrawal? Yes, the Americans—the American withdrawal was done much more um, complete. In other words, it was. Nathan- Major General Nathaniel Greene had more of his own men, whom were left unscathed. That is, they were they weren't harmed. They were able to uh, retreat in a more um, formal manner, whereas General uh, Cornwallis's troops, while their retreat was a modified one, it was not a retreat that was um, a successful one. Their their retreat was more of a chaotic one. Nathaniel Green's retreat was done successfully because he had, it's fair to say that Green probably practiced, had his men practice how they were going to retreat. More often than not, when, when troops retreat, we often think of it as something very easy, just turn around, go back. But when there's a lot of confusion and chaos on a battlefield, retreating can become very difficult. So if you don't have something that's planned already in stone, and knowing how Green didn't use everybody at once, by not using everyone at once, it's fair to say that Green knew that he could that his retreat was going to be a smoother transition. So many of y'all are wondering exactly how many wounded on were there on the American side. Well, I'll tell you here real quick, um here just a moment, but For Major General Nathaniel Greene, knowing that the retreat was done completely intact was something that he wanted all along. So he achieved that, but as for the number of men wounded on the American side was between 184 and 211. That seems like a lot, but as for the British, Cornwallis saw over 400 of his own men wounded. That's even more. And although the Americans did lose this battle. So we're probably wondering now what can we celebrate about knowing that we lost the battle. Well, just because we the Americans lost this battle it doesn't mean that we're that they're hanging their heads low. Nathaniel Green achieved what he what he so much wanted to achieve. Okay, let's find out. Okay? Yes, we lost the battle, but Green and his troops went back south into South Carolina to engage in further skirmishes with um, with the remaining British forces still there. But their actions, folks, their actions involving what? Irregular guerrilla-style fighting. You know, non-conventional, non-traditional European warfare, folks. Green and his forces had spent more time fighting the enemy in the woods, fighting them in areas where the British never would have expected to have been encountered by surprise. Think about it. They were engaging the British in... The Battle of Guilford Courthouse for Nathaniel Green is his first major battle since becoming the general... since becoming the lead commander of the Southern Continental Army. For the past three months, folks, he became the official commander. He arrived in December of 1780, only to see a Continental Army that only had three days' worth of provisions. A Continental Army that was left in a state of disarray. Many of them probably wanted to leave, and probably a few might have even thought about deserting. Nathaniel Green is the right man at the right time to take over a Southern Continental Army that is in desperate need of reform. And after all, if it weren't for Nathaniel Green and had the Congress... Selected another leader, that leader probably would have made the same mistake like Horatio Gates did, and that is engage the enemy in open battlefield, fight as though you're fighting in, in Europe, traditional European-style warfare, going head-to-toe and an open battlefield, putting inexperienced troops up front only to see them run for their lives. What I can tell you is that when the battle at Calpens happened in uh, January of 1781, the leader there was on the American side was Daniel Morgan. Daniel Morgan had the militia come up first to fire, and some questioned Morgan for this. Some had said, you know, from time to time, we've seen our militia break, and it's happened in various battles up north, including even here in, in the start of the southern campaign. Morgan pretty much said, well, you know what? We've got a, I've got a new plan in mind. I'm going to have the militia fire the first two shots, and then I'm going to have the militia retreat in a formal manner where they will not be running for their lives. But the goal will be that once they fire twice at British regulars, we will lure the British as far into the woods as we can. Our men, our regulars will be ready to go. They will be next in line and once we start firing, the British will never know what hit them, and that's pretty much what happened. The British, that's how the British got routed at Cowpens. They um, they went so far into the woods that, that by the time they arrived, there was no way for them to return back um, outside of the, um, there was no way for them to, what do you call it, do a proper retreat to where more of their men uh, came away alive, because most of their men did not survive that day in cow So, for General Nathaniel Green, he achieved a lot, not just in South Carolina, but in North Carolina. Basically, folks, is it fair to say that the British were ever really able to fully control the Carolinas after their victories in Charleston and at Camden? No. And a lot of that was due to the following. The British were never... um, Well, I'll mention that here in a moment. But basically, Nathaniel Green achieved what he wanted to achieve in that, with his uh, leadership, it led to successful irregular-style fighting, but the tactics alone led to Britain's inability behind conquering the South. Cornwallis, after Guilford Courthouse was forced to go to the North Carolina coast, not the Outer Banks, but he had to go to Wilmington to resupply, given his men, listen carefully, given that his men were exhausted from constant, regular marching to to enduring strings of never-ending losses within his army, all due to the inability of adapting towards a new style of fighting, Irregular guerrilla warfare. Think about this, folks. For all for for all the number of men who were shot, who didn't who were wounded, couldn't fight anymore. Those who survived had to keep marching. They had to find new terrain to seek protection. And for every for every uh, place they had to go, guess where they were abandoning? The British were abandoning their headquarters, Charleston. They had no way to be able to turn around and go back south and resupply. Did Cornwallis ask to go to Wilmington? No. But that was the only place he could go to, to to get resupplied, to eventually go north to Virginia. So the bottom line that Nathaniel Green achieved was that he basically got the British out of their, not just so much out of their comfort zone, but he got them out of their primary headquarters. And that was to keep drawing them further north, into the South Carolina-North Carolina line, and all the way into North Carolina, finally at Guilford Courthouse. The British may have won, but as one British statesman said back in England, this victory came at a pirate cost, and another pirate victory would pretty much decimate the British army altogether, not just in the South, but maybe for the greater Revolutionary War itself It itself would be. Pirate meaning costly, folks. It's one thing to win a battle. Of course, when I think of Pyrrhic early on in the Revolutionary War, I could say that like at Bunker Hill, Massachusetts, uh, the British tried three times to assault the um, redoubt that the uh, Continental Army had uh, successfully fortified. They were pretty much wiped away on uh, the first two um, assaults up the hill. But sadly, in the end, uh, the American forces ran out of ammunition and were forced to sadly surrender. Uh, Bunker Hill, but the British did it at a pirate cost. We ended up killing, we ended up killing and wounding just over a quarter of um, of uh, General Thomas Gage's army. So you have to ask yourself: after about f- one or two invasions or failed attempts, is it even worth fighting anymore? Because if you keep on fighting anymore, you're going to lose more men—not just to death, but to being wounded. And how are you going to replace those men? So that's what really, in a sense, was what Guilford Courthouse was all about. It was about wearing down uh, Cornwallis' army. If they win, that's one thing, but it's going to come at a cost for them because they're constantly marching. They're constantly um, losing men from other skirmishes leading up to this battle that they have not been able to replace. And Cornwallis simply was not able to achieve what he wanted, not just to conquer the Carolinas, but to be able to find Enough men, whom would take up arms with the crown. So basically, this was a doomed mission from the start for Cornwallis. But yet he, but yet it took um, irregular style fighting for him to realize that that this ultimate objective of having more men in size would seal the would seal the Carolinas in terms of, for his advantage. It didn't. So. While in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, Cornwallis was given dispatches advising him to go north into Virginia where he would meet up with fellow officers like Benedict Arnold, he ended up taking the command of General William Phillips' forces due to General Phillips' passing away a week prior to Cornwallis' arrival, official arrival that is. Now shortly after arriving into Virginia, would General Cornwallis receive additional uh, troops? would he receive an additional troop reinforcement supply? The answer is yes. On May 24th of 1781, British General Alexander Leslie arrived into Portsmouth with reinforcements from New York for Cornwallis, which increased British troop strength at 7,000 strong. 7,000, folks. That is a huge number. Does anybody want to know just how many... um, troops the Patriots have in Virginia? It's between 1,000 to 2,000. The actual number is the following, folks. I'll tell you here in a moment. Early spring 1781 saw Patriot troop presence in Virginia number around 1,200. 1,200! And you now realize that the enemy has 7,000? Man, I, I hate to say this, but the Patriots are up a creek in Virginia. Who is their who is their head, uh, head leader or commander? It's not George Washington. It's a uh, general, Mar- the General Marquis de Lafayette. But is it fair to say that many of these twelve hundred soldiers under Marquis de Lafayette's command are inexperienced in going head to toe with the world's mightiest military, being that of the British? Yes, many of these men. Um, are probably at the end of their enlistment. Many of these men, they know of the British, but they've never gone head-to-toe with them on battlefield. British leaders, is it fair to say that, the, that British leaders, in, from a militaristic standpoint, as well as from a parliamentary, parliamentary uh, standpoint, do not like um, patriot leaders? Well, I think the, the answer is, a, is an automatic yes. Whom do the British leaders not like in Virginia? If I had to pick one man in particular that the British just flat-out despise, is, who, who do you think it would be? I'll give you some choices. Is it uh, choice A, Patrick Henry? Is it choice B, Thomas Jefferson? Is it choice C, George Wythe? Or is it choice D, George Mason? On one hand, it might be easy to say all of the above, but the actual answer is choice B Thomas Jefferson. British view British leaders view men like Thomas Jefferson. They they see him as the man um who is the traitor. They see him as the man who wrote that um un, unimaginable document, the Declaration of Independence. They see that document as a treasonous document because it was the document that um pretty much, you know, it described all those grievances, injustices that Parliament and the Crown had imposed upon her subjects, the Thirteen Colonies. The The British don't like the fact that um, Jefferson had made, in their eyes, egregious accusations about King George III. Well, if that's bad enough, folks, the British also don't like members of Virginia's General Assembly. In, in their eyes, they see... Um, Men like Jefferson and the Virginia General Assembly as traitors. Automatic military targets to the highest levels. No mercy for traitors. This is uh, not a good time to be in the largest of the thirteen colonies. I mean, yes, Virginia has always had the most to gain, but yet the most to lose. And as much as I hate to say it, right now, we have a lot. Uh, we have a lot at stake here, folks. We Virginia could have a lot to lose if something's not done here soon to um reduce the chances of an invasion and and not, I mean we've already seen an invasion in Richmond but our biggest concern now is what happens if this invasion goes west of Richmond let's find out here what became of significant intelligence findings for general cornwallis on may 30th 1781 Okay, I'll, I'll say the question again. What became of significant intelligence findings for General Cornwallis on May 30th, 1781? While stationed along the North Anna River at Hanover Courthouse, which is north of Richmond, men serving below him seized vital American dispatches, which included information on the whereabouts of Governor Thomas Jefferson and the Virginia General Assembly. Wow. This is what I would call right here a matter of national security that is uh, putting uh, the state of Virginia at an even greater risk. To me, this could become... I can't compare it to what happened on September 11th of 2001, but to me, this almost sounds like a 9-11 of its time. So the fact of the matter now is that um, British dispatchers where men serving below Cornwallis have now seized American dispatches and now know the whereabouts of where Governor Jefferson and the Virginia General Assembly are going to convene, that, that's a huge red flag right there. And American dispatch information did, in fact, reveal where Governor Jefferson and the General Assemb- Assembly would be reconvening. They, they, these dispatches, dispatch messages revealed that they had already left Richmond and were going to uh, plan to reconvene west of Richmond. Where do you think they were going to convene west of Richmond? Were they going to convene um, in Stanton? Were they going to convene in um, Charlottesville? Or were they going to convene in, um, in uh, Lynchburg? The answer is choice B, folks. They're, they're going to convene in Charlottesville. You know Jefferson's home is in Charlottesville and Monticello. Okay, so the British know now that where they can go next, and that is to Charlottesville. So they're going to have to come up with a way, to, um, to uh, what do you call it? Begin the next mission. So, come June the fourth, Cornwallis learned through dispatches that Patriot General Frederick von Steuben, or Baron von Steuben, who was very essential at uh, Valley Forge during, that, um, during the trying time of the winter of 1777 to 1778. Well, Friedrich von Steuben had collected military provisions and equipment at a place known as the Point of Fork in Goochland County, where the Ravana River flows into the James River. Now, the Ravana River, I should point out, um, was, is in, um, goes into Charlottesville, as well as into Louisa County. As a matter of fact, Thomas Jefferson's um, one of the things I know about the Ravana River is that when it froze during the winter, that's where Thomas Jefferson would get his supply of ice, that he would uh, put in his um, ice um, ice pit. He they know that there is uh, they've they've found it at Monticello, and it's a massive ice pit, where Jefferson. Ordered his servants to uncut huge block to cut huge blocks of ice, and it took about thirty. It would take usually about thirty trips to cut all these blocks of ice. They would have to take um, saws and what were called augers or augers to break the ice, and they would use pine straw and they would do them in uh, blocks or different in levels. And the pine straw was very thick and it basically preserved the ice into the spring and summer. So this was a huge ice shaft that Jefferson had, but he depended upon the Ravana River for it. So anyways, yes, um, for uh, General Frederick von Steuben, he is collecting military provisions and equipment at the Point of Fork in uh, Goochland County where the Ravana uh, River flows into the James River. General Cornwallis will send a colonel by the name of John Graves Simcoe. Simcoe was a very interesting figure because he was uh, featured in that... uh, TV series and it is a book titled Turn, uh, and the reason it's called Turn is because it has to do with um, really with loyalties where patriots and loyalists stood in terms of their um, their intelligence on what kind of information they had, whom they were giving it to, and whether or not they were actually uh, betraying uh, the side they were on. So. Colonel John Graves Simcoe will be sent to the Point of Fork with the mission to do what? To destroy all Patriot War provisions on site, which he achieved by capturing the arsenal itself come June the 5th of 1781. Now, this fellow has been mentioned already, and after today, he will be mentioned again. His, remember uh, the, the fellow named uh, Banistray Tarleton? What side is he on, folks? Was he on the British or the American side? answer is the British side. Is Colonel Bannistray Tarleton present in Virginia before June of 1781? Yes, Tarleton served under Cornwallis throughout the Carolina campaigns and arrived into Virginia on May 20th of 1781. It was at the aftermath of the Waxhaw battle that led those Patriot survivors whom uh, survived that horrific um, massacre Whatever number was left unscathed, it had to have been a small number, but they uh, referred to Banastre Tarleton by the following, bloody ban. Basically, if historians know that Banastre Tarleton assaulted um, soldiers whom, waved, whom raised their hands up in the air demanding for a surrender at Waxhaw, historians know on a couple of instances that Tarleton took his sword and slashed a couple of soldiers' shoulders off. Now pardon me for sounding scary but those are the horrors of war especially in the Carolinas there was no um traditional fighting i think we've kind of covered that part but that's how tarleton got his nickname bloody ban he had no remorse or no uh, regards for the enemy to the point where even if the enemy if individuals on the enemy side raised their hands requesting a formal surrender it was denied He went as far as stabbing the opposition in their chests to hacking off a finger or chopping their shoulders off. I mean, this guy, I could see why in the eyes of the patriots, he is known as Bloody Ban. So yes, given his ruthless tactics employed at Waxhaw led to the British forces massacring over 100 patriot troops whom had already requested surrender surrender under the white flag of truce, What I do find interesting about all this is because a lot of this is due to the fact that Tarleton became ruthless. He was, I don't know how ruthless he was prior to Waxhall, but it all changed because of all the confusion going on. They were about 10 to 20 yards away from American forces when the white flag of truce appeared. Thinking that everybody would just stop right away on the British side, someone on the American side fired at Tarleton's horse causing Tarleton himself to um, fall off of his horse and enraging his fellow um, dragoon um, men who were known as uh, dragoons because they moved by horse and by um, foot, and they were referred to as uh, light infantry, uh, light infantry being men who didn't carry a lot of equipment with them but could move very quick from point A to point B to uh, surprise the uh, opposition in an in, an, in a, uh, an attack that uh, was not expected. So, what I've come to realize, or wonder, is that had Bannistray Tarleton not been shot, along with him getting uh, felled over by, as a result of uh, being sh- his horse being shot, and see, when that happened to Tarleton, many of his uh, men below him felt as though it was a crime to shoot at the highest ranking officer, and it was. That If there was one thing that um, that the British had always believed in, in European traditional warfare, it was one thing to shoot a regular soldier, but you never went after officers. Well, that all changed as early as 1775, most notably at Bunker Hill, Massachusetts. Americans were not going to sit back and, and say, well, I guess we need to abide by the British rules of fighting. Irregular-style fighting changed all that even in the South when um, Patriot forces were shooting at officers, because by shooting at officers, whom are the, um, other, whom are the soldiers below going to be able to turn to if they don't have any other commanders around them? They can't turn to anybody. So had Tarleton not been shot along with getting uh, felled over, it is, one has to wonder if Tarleton might not have gotten an image of one whom was ruthless in pursuing down the enemy. In other words, maybe we wouldn't have got it in that nickname of his uh, being Bloody Ban. Well, what's more important about June 3rd, 1781, after General Cornwallis had placed his troops to Cook's Ford on the south side of the North Anna River? What's even more important, folks? Well, Cornwallis and his forces were near the road from Richmond to Fredericksburg. Where the Hanover Courthouse and the North, uh, R- North River, North Anna River met up, this enabled Colonel Bannister Tarleton and his forces to begin their march towards Charlottesville. With the intent on disrupting the General Assembly and capturing the most important leader in Virginia state government, who did the who did the British folks under Colonel Bannister Tarleton's command want to capture at the highest level Governor Thomas Jefferson. Folks, that is their mission. They don't want to just beat um, troops on a battlefield now. They want to, um, they pretty much want to annihilate Virginia's government and that also means capturing leaders from the highest level. That means capturing men like Thomas Jefferson. It could possibly involve capturing former Governor Patrick Henry. They want to send a statement. They want to send a statement saying that, look, we are going to crush this rebellion once and for all, and by doing so, it's going to mean taking Virginia, the largest of the 13 colonies. If we get Virginia under our command, then the rest of the South will fall, and it would only be a matter of time before the other nine colonies uh, fall and to where all 13 of them return to uh, subject status, subject status of the crown, and subject status of parliament. This is dangerous, folks. And what leader in the Continental Army becomes the one whom realizes that Virginia had now become the primary epicenter of the Revolutionary War, given what Colonel John Simcoe had done at point of fork by destroying all the patriot provisions there were? Marquis de Lafayette it was Marquis de Lafayette who realized that that Virginia was in trouble he realized that because of a lack of greater intelligence findings from within continental sources including leaders from all ranks within the state of Virginia that it's only going to be a matter of time before um, members of the General Assembly could meet a, a, a horrific fate or that um the highest level the highest level commander in Virginia's government being Thomas Jefferson, not only could run the risk of being captured, but he could be taken back to England, tried for treason, only to be executed as a traitor. That scares me, folks, to think that um, that it could only be a matter of time before a short matter of time before the British could actually make their way to Thomas Jefferson's home and try to catch our governor by surprise, not just by surprise, but by force and other members of the General Assembly who are just as vulnerable. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and uh, thank you for your time, as always. And when I'm on the air again next, we're going to learn more about uh, Tarleton's, um, Tarleton's ride to Charlottesville. And now we're going to have to ask ourselves this. Will Jack Jewett actually encounter Bannister Tarleton. In other words, is there a chance that he could either encounter him like face-to-face, or is it likely that Jack Jewett might find out where Bannister Tarleton is uh, lodging? I mean, after all, even British forces, you know, can't ride through the night. You know, they do, you know, horses have to um, (laughs) have to take a rest. But we might find out somewhere down the road that um, that a miracle will happen overnight. Something will happen, but for now we have to wonder who is going to be the first to actually witness banister Tarleton coming through. And will this person on the American side be able to do something about it in enough time to uh, warn members from above of great um, profile in the Virginia state government? Well, thank you for your time, as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again next. And thank you again for being such faithful listeners. Uh, Without you all, I don't know um, if I would have uh, been able to have made it this far. Thank you again, and uh, continue to stay safe wherever you all may live. Uh, Later for now.